Good morning, everyone. It is so nice to see you all here. We've still got some people in the back who need a little space. So if you are already in your pews, smile at people who are coming in so you can get in. I probably need to start with bells, don't I? I know. It is. Hello. Come on down. There we go. Thank you. Good. I appreciate everyone telling me my mic is not on. That is not the issue. <laughs> the issue is you are talking. And I'm glad that you all are here. It is great to see so many of you in person. And for those of you joining us online, we are very glad that you're here. A quick note that we are studying John this year. And by the looks of it, John is popular. And so I'm glad that we are doing that. If this is your first time at RBS, know you are very welcome. We are a nice community here and we like to talk. And I hope that that talking leads to questions. So we love questions. So as we go through this study, please do raise your hand, stop me. If you're watching online, certain of our platforms allow for you to ask questions. Buff Mussy is going to be monitoring those social platforms. So as you write questions online, she will stop me and ask those questions live right now. And if you're watching on demand later or in a podcast, then know that you can email Bub anytime with questions throughout the week. As you read ahead, I know you read ahead. As you read ahead and you have questions, let us know about your questions because we would love to recognize those questions live as we teach each week. As you came in, I hope you got a handout. It looks something like this, a little chart. For those of you online, know that Bub is going to email out this chart after today's class. Which brings me to another note. If you are not receiving Bub's emails, that just simply reminds you of what we're reading each week. And it's also a really nice way in case there's inclement weather or something like that and we need to make a last minute shift in place, then that's the way that we communicate with everyone. If you are not receiving those emails, we would love to put you on our email list. If you are here in person, then there are sign-up sheets at both doors and we would love for you to put your email address there. If your email address has changed, then update that email address. If you are getting the emails, you do not need to sign up again because Bub tracks all of that. If you are joining us online and want to make sure that you get emails with links and attachments like today's handout, then you can go onto our website, stmichael.org RBS, and then you can email Bub that way or you can go onto our website in general, send Bub a note or even just put a note in the social platform that you're watching today. As people keep coming in, because we're not Episcopalian if we don't have a lot of people come in between now and when the gospel's read, um, if, <laughs> then please be nice, smile if you're on the aisle. You don't have to sit in an aisle seat. I promise you'll still go to heaven. So we can scoot in and make space for one another. It's so very hospitable, thank you. So as I said, we are studying John. And we've got a book that is available. Well, I say it's available in our bookshop. I think we only have like three copies left. But this is the book that we are reading this year. We do have a couple copies left in our bookshop down the hall, but it's easily available on Amazon or probably even in most of the Christian bookstores around here. It's written by N.T. Wright, 
And it is a single study, 26 studies in this book, a single volume. It's very easy to read. And so if this is just something that is a companion to you reading the gospel as well, if you want a little bit more meat on the bone, then you can get Tom Wright's, same person, N.T. Wright, his two-volume commentary, it gives you a little bit more on each of the sections of John. And so if you really want a little bit more, this two-volume is also available called John for Everyone. And Bub will include that link as well in case you are interested. Of course, our main text is the Bible itself. We're going to start with a little bit about the Bible, like I do every single year, and so we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but just a few other reminders. We have all of the RBS recordings available online or wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the great little projects that happened over the summer is we went back and we set each year as a season. So if you're wondering, it's season seven that we're in right now. Um, we have set each year as a season and an episode the same way that you would say watch TV or listen to other podcasts. So now hopefully it's very easy to go back and catch up or re-listen. And if you've got friends who are interested in this or interested in studies that we've done over the last few years, those are available on our website. You can stream it directly or wherever you get your podcasts or even watch the videos on YouTube. Lastly, just a few new announcements. First off, the first Women of St. Michael Luncheon is going to happen next Wednesday. If you are not a seasoned subscriber or not already signed up for that lunch, I would love for you to join us. I'm actually the speaker for the first lunch. And so next week, we'll end about 15 minutes early so that everyone can get downstairs to the luncheon, including me. And in addition to the Women of St. Michael Luncheon, we are now very pleased to offer childcare during this Bible study. And so if you've got some friends or neighbors or just other people um, who would like to make use of our childcare that's really up to age about four, then please let Bub know. We do need to know that you are coming. We're not really doing it as just a, an unannounced drop-in. And so please do send her an email, reserve a spot, and we would love to be able to support you in that way. We've got John bookmarks available at all the doors. It gives you the whole schedule through the end of this calendar year. So grab one on your way out. Let's start with a prayer and then we'll get rolling because we have a lot of information today. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together and we ask that you open us up, make space inside of us, Fill us with your peace and your presence. Help us to focus our hearts and minds on what you have revealed through the Gospel of John about your Son, Jesus Christ. May this study help to deepen our own discipleship, deepen our relationships with one another, and help us to be your hands and feet of love in the world. I ask your prayers for all those we hold in our hearts and our minds today. All those who need your healing touch, all those who are near the end of their lives, all those we love and see no longer, may your continued presence uplift each and every one of us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Y'all, I'm scared of John. I just want you to know. This is... I have been so confident about all the things that we have done. This one I have tried to avoid for years. Um, this is the third year of a three-year cycle. You may remember years back, 
when I asked, what should we study? The number one request was the Gospel of John. And I thought, what can I do so I don't have to teach on John? And so, that's not true. Um, I realized that if we do the Gospel of John, it is so highly Christological. And by that, I mean the idea of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, not just a person, a teacher, a healer, but as Christ is so complicated that we need to create a very sure foundation. And so as I did three years, or I guess two years ago now, we began a three-year cycle because the idea of Christ is prophet, priest, and king. We're going to get to that today. We needed to look at the great prophet, that's Moses, and we needed to look at the great king, that's David. And so two years ago, we spent the year looking at Moses primarily, the character of Moses. Last year, we looked primarily at the character of David, although we did talk about the kings, both Saul and Solomon as well. If you've not done those studies, no, you can go back and do those. It's not necessary, but it really does give a depth of information, background on how the first century understood Jesus of Nazareth. Because we may think that Jesus just popped out as the Christ and the Messiah. That's not what happened. Over the course of the first century, there was a lot of theological developments that created the kind of understanding that we share now. It took hundreds of years to really develop the theology around Jesus that we might take for granted today. That kind of development is really important for us to understand because John slots in how we became the Christian people we are today. So most of today's lesson is going to essentially be preamble to get into the gospel itself, but we are going to look at the first 18 verses, what is considered the prologue to the gospel of John today. As I start every year, I do want to talk about the Bible. So today we have four parts to our lesson. Part one, we're going to do just the Bible in general. Part two, we're going to talk about that triplex, the prophet, priest, king of Jesus. Part three, we're going to take a look at gospels in general, because I do want to make sure that we remember John is not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and why. And then we're going to take a look at the prologue of John's gospel itself. Don't look at your handout just yet. I'll get there. Let's talk the Bible. We know that the history of the Bible is very fluid. I like to say that the Bible is a library. It's not a single book. It is a volume that is made up of many, many books. And so do not think you can read front to back as if you're reading a novel. That's not going to work. It's going to get wonky. You're going to be good till you get to about Chronicles. And then you're going to say, wait a minute, what just happened? Because you're going to jump back in time. And then all of a sudden it's going to mess you up chronologically. And that's not even speaking of things like Proverbs and all of the weird poetry. So the Bible is a library of lots of books. The Bible as we know it did not exist in this format in a very official way until about five or 600 years ago. About 1,500 years ago, basically the Bible as we know it mostly landed in its current form, but it wasn't really codified until about five to 600 years ago. In addition, the version of the Bible you read in English is not the original language. Just want to be clear, okay? <laughs> it was not written in English. And so anything you read in English 
is at least a paraphrase, if not a translation. And I want to differentiate that, and we've said this every year, so just it's nice recap. There are different ways that you can take the Bible from its original language, which is Hebrew and Greek primarily, and a little bit of Aramaic, and take it to another language like English. That is primarily done through translations, and that is an attempt at taking the original language and making it as accurate as possible in English. The first big impactful translation into English was the King James Version. It's nice. And I love reading Psalm 23 in the King's English. It is not a terribly accurate translation. So do not be offended. If you've got your grandma's copy of the King James at home, love it, it's great. But I do want you to know there are more accurate translations into English. The translation that we use, that I use, like that you hear read in the Episcopal Church on Sundays or in other worship services, is the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. That is the most accurate translation at this point. Another really great translation that's just slightly easier to read than the NRSV is the NIV, the New International Version. I really like the NIV. There's nothing wrong with it. If that's what you've got, don't worry about it. Don't buy another one. Keep what you have. Those translations are really good. I always recommend considering another book on your shelf, and that is a paraphrase. The best paraphrase is the message. The message is really faithfully done, and it can help us understand some of the more unclear versions or verses in Scripture. I'm sure we've all been sitting in church, perhaps reading on our own, where we've heard or read a series of verses and thought, what? That's okay. The message can help us figure out what's going on. Then we go back to an accurate translation and we're able to really get the meaning of the text. And so I love putting them side by side. If you ever get to a difficult passage, just go to the message, read through it, and you're going to think, okay, I know what's going on. Then go back to the translation. Don't just stop with the paraphrase because that's not quite enough. Go back to the translation. Really try to dig in to what is really being said. This is all very important because the Bible we read really shapes how we understand the meaning of the writing. And regardless of which English version we read, it is not the original language. Today, when we look at the prologue of John, there is one Greek word that is really important to understand, and that is logos, L-O-G-O-S. That is the word. When John uses the word logos, there is a huge amount of weight put to that very simple word. And we're going to talk about what that word means in both Koine Greek, that's the ancient Greek, and where it comes from in the Hebrew and the way that the Hellenists of the time would have understood it, all collapsing into why John would have used that word to introduce Jesus. That's the kind of study that we want to do in this room. This is not really meditation and prayer. It is. Studying is always prayer. But we want to get meaty in here. And so if you've never studied anything with me before, know that at some point in time, you will be offended or knocked off your balance with love. And so it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So just prepare yourself. It's good. We're all going to be challenged in a really healthy way. 
Oh, lastly, when it comes to, well, no, I have two more things I want to tell you about the Bibles. So I do this every year because I just want to make clear that I'm not being rude. I say Old Testament. I do not say Hebrew Bible. And the reason I do that is because the Old Testament is a different order of books than the Hebrew Bible. There are many people who think they're being super kind and considerate to other culture by saying Hebrew Bible, like that's super cool because I say Hebrew Bible, not Old Testament. That's not it. The Hebrew Bible is a certain set of books. The Hebrew Bible is meant to tell a particular story, and so the arc of the story is complete in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible actually ends with the writings, the poetry. In the Old Testament, we've reordered them. And the in the Old Testament, we end with the prophets. Because for us, the story's not over. And so we end with Malachi, because we are pointing to the Messiah. And of course, for us, the Messiah, you turn the page and you're in the Gospel of Matthew because the Messiah has come. And so reordering the books of the Hebrew Bible is intentionally trying to point to the New Testament, the fulfillment of the prophecies. And so when I reference the Old Testament, I'm not being insensitive. I'm actually referencing that particular ordering of books that then predicates the New Testament for us. Good? I'm doing this fast because I, if you want more information about this in years past, I have spent more time on this, but we're good. Lastly, this is going to be important for us when we consider John and certain words like logos. Bear with me. I'm a history nerd. I love this stuff. So we're going to take a little trip back in time and we're going to go to the third century BCE. I use BCE and CE, not BC and AD. It's just a little bit more sensitive. That means before the Common Era and the Common Era. Same thing, there's still a zero in there. So if we go back to the third century BCE, we have Alexander the Great going gangbusters all over the center of the world and expanding the Greek Empire in a significant way up to Macedon, down into Egypt, and he goes all the way east into what is Western India. So the Greek empire is gigantic. Alexander does not live very long. He's only in his early 30s when he dies. And once Alexander dies, the empire begins to kind of crumble a bit in its leadership style and there are a whole bunch of people that come and go. But ultimately we land at about 300 with Ptolemy I. It's important to know this because Ptolemy I set up the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. All of that matters because Ptolemy II is the person who funded the first major translation of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament books, into Greek. This really matters because it is that Greek version that most of our New Testament writers would have been able to read and would have informed their writing of the New Testament books. So let me just tell you this little story. Ptolemy II took all these Hebrew scriptures and he called together 72 Hebrew scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes. I should have predicated this by saying, this is the story, okay? Whether this happened or not, whatever. He brought six Hebrew scholars from each of the 12 tribes together to translate the Hebrew that was not known. People did not speak Hebrew at this point in time. People spoke Greek or Aramaic. 
He asked these Hebrew scholars to translate the Hebrew into Koine, ancient Greek. They all went into individual rooms. They translated the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And when they all came out, identical copies. It's a miracle. Okay, so we call that the Septuagint because Septuagint means 70 in Latin. So if you've ever heard of the Septuagint, that is the Greek Hebrew scriptures. The people at the time of Jesus's life and those who wrote the New Testament were not able to read Hebrew. With one potential exception, Paul probably could have gotten around in it. But the gospel writers and everyone else, no, no, no. There would have been no Hebrew knowledge, no Hebrew literacy. They would have read the Greek translation of the Hebrew that Ptolemy II commissioned in 200-ish BCE. That's important because when you write based on a translation, you're always going to miss something. And we have to acknowledge that regardless of the accuracy of those Hebrew scholars back in the third century BCE, they were obviously not going to be quite as strict in the original language as we would be today. We know now that people have gone back and read the original Hebrew and translated it into other languages like English, just how flawed the Septuagint actually is. Good attempt, very helpful, got the message out in a language that people understood, but not highly accurate. But that's the version that writers like John would have known when he wrote his gospel. And so his word choice is often based on the Septuagint, not the original Hebrew language. Does that all make sense? <laughs> Those were slow nods. <laughs> I don't really want to spend any more time on that, but I want, is there any question? Like is something, could something be clearer? No? All right then, you had your chance. Okay, so that's the Bible. Boom, put that over. Part two, let's talk about what is called the threefold office of Christ. The threefold office of Christ is based on teachings of the Old Testament that identified the Messiah as someone who would fulfill three specific roles, prophet, priest, and king. That kind of foretelling of the Messiah was then applied to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In Latin, this is called the munus triplex. So we often talk of it as the triplex of Christ. This idea of prophet, priest, and king is extremely important. Let's just, let's just do a little bit of definition of those three terms. A prophet's a messenger sent by God. It's a person who speaks for God. It's a person who witnesses and calls people into conversion on behalf of God. And prophets are often killed because of their message. Okay? Two, a priest is a mediator. A priest is the bridge between God and humanity. A priest offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to God as that mediator. And we know that in the Jewish tradition, the priests of Judaism were the ones who could go into these special places in the temple to offer those sacrifices. And the high priest alone was the one who could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Three, 
A king is a person who reigns over a particular group of people or a particular territory. And when the Jewish people were ruled by kings, they were very strong. They had clear borders, they had a great economy, they had a great army, and there was a desire to get back to that greatness. And so in all of the prophetic traditions, when you put them together, the Messiah was a person who would fulfill all three of those roles, those offices. It's important for us to hold all three of those things together because John, more than any other gospel, really leans into the triplex of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. And I'm going to reference that over and over and over this year so that we can see the way that John puts all that together. Simple idea, but it's going to resonate again and again and again. Any questions on that? For those of you who haven't studied with me, you know, I'm an old person, an educator, and we were always taught that it takes about seven seconds on average for a person to form a question. And so when I just am quiet, I'm not having a problem. I just <laughs> am waiting, giving you a chance to form a question. Okay. See, there we go. Yes. Man, Judy, what a great segue, because we'll go into section three, and that is a comparison of the synoptic gospels and John. So I'm going to get to that. That's the next section. Any other questions just about those, the threefold office? Okay, that's next. There are four gospels in your Bible, just to be clear. Four. And if I were to ask you to flip to the Gospels, don't start from the front. Um, whenever I say to someone, you know, like, turn to Galatians, and they start flipping from the front, I think, oh, geez, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, so <laughs> the Gospels are the very first four books of the New Testament, but they are almost certainly the last four books in the New Testament to have been written. Okay, understand that? Chronologically speaking, in history, the letters that come after the Gospels and Acts were written before the Gospels themselves, basically. There's a little bit of overlap in there with Mark and maybe a few of those letters, but mostly the Gospels came after all the letters. The very first Gospel to be written was Mark. Mark was written sometime between 65 and 70 CE. So just think about Jesus' life. Jesus died, resurrected, ascended somewhere around 30-ish, maybe early 30s. So if Mark is not written until at least the mid-60s, that's like 30 solid years between Jesus being gone and the first, the earliest of our Gospels to be written. And now I need to asterisk this and say the four Gospels that we have in our Bible are not the only Gospels that were written. Everybody wrote a gospel. And so all of Jesus's followers and all the apostles and all the other people, they all wrote gospels because they were intending to share the story of Jesus. The four we have are the ones that over the course of the first millennia became authoritative. Mark barely made it, by the way. I, Mark, and the reason is because 90% of Mark is included verbatim in Matthew. And so, in a sense, why even keep Mark if 
all of it's in Matthew, but it's because Mark had a particular perspective. I'll mention that in one second. It's important for us, though, to understand that 30-plus years separated Jesus' life and the earliest written gospel in our Bible. If you are interested in reading other gospels, you can go Google that and you can read for hours. But we don't really have whole versions of those gospels. We have parchment and pieces and that sort of stuff. But they're cool stories. And so if you want to go read them, why not? Won't hurt. They're just not the authoritative gospels like they are in the Bible. So Mark written 65 to 70. The reason we know Mark was written before 70 is because, anyone remember what happened in 70? Thank you. Temple was sacked by the Romans and destroyed. Mark has seems to have no idea that has happened. Everything that Mark does and the way he tells his story seems to presume the temple exists. And so scholars say, well, then he must not have written his story after 70. So we've got Mark there, 65 to 70. Matthew and Luke were written next. Matthew and Luke were written in the 80s somewhere. So between about 80 and 90 CE. So we're getting far away from the time of Jesus. We're now 50 plus years, 50 years away from when Jesus actually lived. John was written last, and John was written after 90, sometime between 90 and 100. So John is 60 plus years after Jesus's life and death. That means the writer of John may or may not have actually even known Jesus. That is debatable. We'll get there. Remember, I'm going to knock you off your balance. Okay, so we'll get there. Don't worry about that just yet. I do want you to understand, though, the order of their historic writings. Now let's talk about the different portraits each one gives. I like to say the word portrait because if you were to ask, this is kind of what I always say, if you were to ask four people important in your life, maybe a child, maybe a sibling, maybe a parent, maybe a friend or a coworker or whatever, if you were to ask four people who know you well to all write the story of you, all four of those stories would be very different because the people themselves are different and their relationship to you is different. That's how we need to think about the four Gospels. No one Gospel is the true story and the other three the untrue story. That's not how it works. Each person, each author of the Gospels is telling their version of the story. They really believe it's truth, but they are also human. They are divinely inspired to write the story, and they are human. And so when we get into spots where the Gospels don't seem to agree, do not stress, do not worry, do not think you have to pick one. You don't. We have to hold them all in tension. And a great example of this is if you look on your handout, the front of your handout, you've got two columns. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but the synoptic Gospels are the first three, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and then there's John. Look at the second row of your chart. If I were to ask you how long Jesus' ministry last, lasted, my guess is you would all say three years. That's kind of what we are taught in Sunday school, three years. It's three years-ish, maybe four, in John. But in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one. Who's right? Wrong question. Don't ask that question. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Because they're telling the stories that they believe are very true. 
But I do want us to be aware that there are very obvious ways in which the Gospels do not align in that literal sense. And so, as I always say, we are meant to read the Bible literately, not literally. And so we are becoming more and more literate in the way that we read the Bible, and that's important. So let's talk just a little bit more about their portraits. Mark focuses on the humanity of Jesus. Matthew focuses on Jesus's royalty, like the kingship of Jesus. Luke tends to focus on the priesthood of Jesus, and John focuses on the divinity of Jesus. That's why for most Christians, if you are going to pick a verse to put on your coffee mug or on your t-shirt, odds are you're going to pick a verse from John because John is the most Christian of the Gospels. John has a high Christology, and that is opinion of Jesus as the Christ. For Mark and Matthew and Luke, the focus on Jesus was a bit more on his earthly nature, whether that was a prophet, priest, or king. For John, the focus was on his divine nature. And for a lot of Christians today, the divinity of Jesus is what we really like. We might say that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, but we don't tend to love the human Jesus quite as much as we love the divine Jesus. We like to quote about the divine Jesus. We like to consider Jesus as divine. And honestly, I don't have no idea why that's the case because last time I checked, we're all human. And so I love the humanity of Jesus. I love it when Jesus gets mad. I love angry Jesus. He's great because it makes me feel like I'm not quite so bad when I get angry. And so there is, did you all see the other day there was a meme rolling around? Um, someone had used artificial intelligence, the AI generator, and they had put in Jesus flipping over tables. And the picture is a table with Jesus doing a backflip over it. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. So I'm gonna try and play around with some of those, we'll see. But John really does focus on the divinity of Jesus in a very tangible way. Mm. On your handout, at your pleasure, I just want you to peruse when you go home. The front page is a comparison of the ideas in the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the ideas in John. What is in both, but how they're different. If you turn it over, you've got a list, 1 through 15, of material that is only in John, not in the synoptics, and then number 16 through 34, material that is in the synoptics and not in John. I do think you will find it very interesting to look at some of the stories that really mean a lot to us, that we could tell off the top of our heads, that might only come from John and not even be in the other three Gospels, or vice versa. It's a good little thing to look over. And then if you've got questions on this, just know that we will get to all of these little details as we go through John together. Okay, let's look at the basic outline of John. Yes, sir.
So you're asking about a council that was held in Canterbury this past summer? Yes. That is so great of you, and I have no clue. Um, I will look it up because I do not, I have no idea. Um, but if it's about the Gospel of Peter, um, there are a few Gospels that do really exist in the majority that exists today, like Peter and Thomas and Mary. So you can go read those um, easily for free online. But I do not know about that council. I'll look it up. Okay, I was going to resist this, but <laughs> you asked, so I'm going to get out the markers. Okay, so let me just, because this is actually kind of interesting, I think. Um, I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to be able to do this where the people online can see, but I'm going to try. So, synoptic means synopsis. That's the root word. And so essentially you've got the same story presenting the same view of the story between those three. That's why we have called them the synoptics for a long time. The, there are two main sources for the synoptic gospels. The first source is actually Mark. And then there's another source that we call Q, which is essentially the sayings of Jesus. Why we think there are these two sources is because, like I said before, you've got Luke and Matthew, and there are parts of Mark, about 70% of Mark is in Luke, and about 90% of Mark is in Matthew. But then there are parts of Matthew and Luke that are the same, that are not in Mark. And so how do you have two books that obviously share this source, have other pieces that are identical that are not here? Well, there has to be something else. And it happens that all of these pieces that are in both Mark, I mean, both Matthew and Luke, that are the same, not in Mark, are quotes of Jesus. And so what scholars think is that there was some kind of good quotes of Jesus being passed around to people, not a story, just quotes. And that Luke and Matthew had both of these source documents when they wrote their gospels. Does that make sense? And so if you ever hear someone speak of Q, this is what they're talking about. Now, interestingly, John, seems to have had a third source for stories that are contained in Luke and Matthew, but differently. And we're not sure exactly why John would have changed them, because Luke and Matthew obviously made a choice to keep them literal, because they are verbatim in, their, in the two Gospels. John, though, knows about some stories, but tells those stories differently. So could John have known of Mark, Luke, and Matthew and Q? Yes. But then John would have made a very intentional decision not to have copied portions of these four sources the way that Luke and Matthew did. And why did he choose that? We don't know. 
And so most scholars think that John may not have had the literal versions of these Gospels, but instead, John just had a bunch of stories. And so he's telling the stories, but he's telling them in his own voice, rather than copying the stories from any of these sources. Sound good? Okay. Let's get to the basic outline of John. John is a relatively simple book. The language is not overly complex, and the Greek is not overly elegant. Um, I think I said years back, the very first time we did this around Luke, Luke's Greek is so excellent. It is complex, it is elegant, Luke tells the best stories. It is really about as good a Koine ancient Greek as exists in any document. John, not so much. It's okay, John's fine. But John's quite simple. John uses a whole bunch of simple words that have truly profound meaning behind them. There are essentially four big sections of the Gospel of John. The first is the prologue. We're going to do that today. It's just the first 18 verses. Then you've got a whole big section that's essentially from the middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12, and that is the book of signs. You might say miracles, but eh, we typically say signs to differentiate from what is literally called miracles in the other Gospels. These signs of Jesus point to his divinity. Very first sign in John is when he changes the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And so we're going to get to all seven of those signs. Then the next section, section three, is chapters 13 through 20. And that's what we typically call the book of glory. These, these different sections would be the imagery that describes who God is, who Jesus is in relationship to God, things like the bread of life and the light of the world and the good shepherd and all of that stuff. Those things that we know, we're very familiar with. That comes from that third section of John. And then we've got an epilogue, which is essentially chapter 21. So you have a prologue and an epilogue. And then you get two sections of sevens. And all of this creates what is, ready for the nerd moment of the day, what is called a chiasm. Haha, <laughs> that's going to be your word of the day. I shouldn't have moved this away. The Greek letter chi is what? A chi, or an X, if you, if you look at just the left side of the X, what you get is kind of going in and then coming out, and it is symmetric, and the middle is the point where the arms turn. What this means is that John's Gospel's one big chi, chiasm, and within it are dozens of small chiasms. And by this I mean you've got a literary style that is like this. A, B, C, D, and then you've got C, B, A. 
So this kind of literary style is throughout John over and over and over and over again. This kind of style was in order to help people memorize scripture. Remember at the time that these things were being written, people were not literate. And so people were meant to memorize these stories. John uses an old style, very ancient. It, it's not from first century. It's from way before that called Achaism that does like an ABCD CBA kind of pattern. And you might go down to E or to K or to L, whatever. But this helps people to go into the center point, that is the climax, and then come back out having memorized all the ideas. We're going to see this in the prologue. So don't worry too much about this just yet. But I want you to see that the chi going in and coming out is going to repeat over and over and over in John. Any questions about this? You were not lost. Come on. Okay. After the simple style and that chiasm, I want to also note that it can be difficult as we read through John to know who's speaking all the time. John is not the clearest narrator. And so there are many sections of the gospel where Jesus seems to be speaking and then maybe Jesus keeps speaking, but the pronouns shift. You know, it might be first person, then it's third person. And the way that the writing is structured it's not clear that it's gone from Jesus's words to the narrator's words, but mm, maybe. And so one note is if you read a red letter Bible, okay, so Episcopalians in here, if you don't know what that is, um, there are lots of Bibles out there that put Jesus's words in red. Be very careful in the Gospel of John because John did not write Jesus's words in red. That is someone making Jesus's words read. And I will tell you right now, half the words that are read in your red letter Bibles may not actually be Jesus's words. We really, it's unclear. And it's not unclear in the English because they solve all those problems. It's unclear in the Greek. And so if you look at that and you say, Chris, it's obviously Jesus still speaking. That's English. It is not the original language. And so we'll note that as we go through, but why this is important is in the world, we know that people mostly unintentionally, I'll be charitable, but sometimes intentionally try to weaponize the Bible. John is one of their favorite weapons. If you do not understand that we are uncertain whether Jesus said a certain thing or not, then weaponizing that quote is extremely thoughtless. In fact, because we have set up the historic nature of its writings, how in the world do you think someone could have gone 70 years away from Jesus's actual voice on earth and gotten his quote verbatim. Nope. That's not even right in the Synoptic Gospels. So when the writers are telling the stories, do not say Jesus said. That's not it. That's the wrong way to look at this. Just like when we went back 
to Genesis or Exodus, one of the questions that was asked over and over again is, why would God do that? Why would God say that? God didn't say or do those things like that. It's the person who told the story who understood God acting or saying in that way. Now, the better question is, why did that person think God did or said that? And so as we're going through the Gospel of John, let's make sure we're asking the best kind of question we can ask. Why does the Gospel writer attribute that quote to Jesus? Even better, is that quote Jesus's or is that the author's interpretation of what he thought Jesus probably would have said? It becomes a bit more complex. And so as we read through John, the words are simple, but the interpretation and the meaning is going to be a lot more complex than we think. There are also, to add to the complexity, two clear historical settings we have to keep in mind, particularly in John. And that is the time at which Jesus lived and the time at which the book was written. It's very different. Matthew and Luke, written after the temple was destroyed, but still kind of in that period of time when the Jewish people were relatively central in Israel or in Judea. John, that, that ship has sailed. The Jewish people have gone all over the place. The whole idea of a Jewish state, really, really gone. And now John is writing for an audience that is as Gentile as they are Jewish because all of the impacts of the apostles like Peter and Paul have now really taken root. And John knows he is writing a story for followers of Jesus, not potential followers of Jesus, for the actual people who are committed to following Jesus. And so he's developing the idea of who Jesus is in a much more profound way than either of the other, than the other three gospels that are in our Bible. Okay. Let's jump in with the prologue of John, section four. If you've got a question, ask. The Gospel of John, chapter one, verse one. In this prologue, first 18 verses, we hear the clearest, most profound statement of Jesus's identity that we have in the entire Bible. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, I got chills. That's good stuff. This first verse is amazing. And no person reading this first verse who has any familiarity with the Bible would miss it hearkening back to Genesis. In the beginning... That's the opening of Genesis. It's the opening of John's gospel. That is not a mistake. That is not a coincidence. We know immediately, before we're even halfway through the first verse of John's gospel, that John believes something absolutely cosmic is happening with this person of Jesus. There is no way that any of us should miss that. John is not subtle. John is hitting us right between the eyes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in that very first verse, we get Logos three times. And so we're going to talk about Logos in a minute. At once we know that whatever John is going to tell us about Jesus is going to change the entire world forever. 
This is God the Creator creating again, recreating again. This is huge. As I mentioned, the literary structure of these first 18 verses is an ABCDCBA style. And I want to note that so that we, when we read all 18 verses in a moment, you can begin to track what I'm talking about. So just, if you're taking notes, A, verses 1 through 5, B, verses 6 through 8, C, verses 9 and the very beginning of 10, and then D, the center, the climax, really happens in verses 11 through 13. Verse 12 is it. That is the point of the prologue. And then we back out. You've got C1, verse 14, B1, verse 15, A1, verse 16 through 18. As we read through these 18 verses, see if you can see us going into the center toward verse 12 and then coming back out to verse 18, and it mirrors itself. So verse 1 and 18 are going to mirror the same idea and on and on and on. Let's read it together. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, here's the point, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. Then we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is only God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This opening prologue sets up everything we need to know about Jesus as the Christ. When I say that the Christology of Jesus is so very clear in John, you do not get this kind of clarity, this kind of Christianity in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. You might think you do, but go back and read them. It's not there. When we talk of Christian theology, the identity of Jesus as the Christ, it is almost everything coming from the Gospel of John. We get right here 
the idea of the Trinity, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son, the Word, is absolutely linked together. And we understand that the Word means something very significant. And so I'm going to hearken back to the Septuagint. Remember that 72 Hebrew scholars who translated everything into Greek. The Septuagint translates the Hebrew word dabar, which is the word of God, into either rema or logos. We'll talk about rema later. Logos is the word that John uses here, and it is explicitly referencing back to the word dabar in Hebrew that was translated as logos in the Septuagint. So when John's looking at the Hebrew scriptures, John sees things like by the word of the Lord, I'm sorry, John sees things like Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And when John reads that, John's not reading Dabar, John is reading Logos. So all of these Hebrew scribes have translated God's word into Logos. And so John takes that word, Logos, and makes that the absolute root of the identity of Jesus. And so anybody reading John's gospel, the Hebrew, the Jewish people reading John's gospel are going to immediately reference that Jesus is the powerful word that God used to create everything up to this point. And so what John is saying is not only is Jesus the manifestation of God's will on earth as a person, that's good enough. But John is saying that as the word, as the logos, as God's spoken manifestation of power, Jesus was that word that was there at the very beginning when God created everything. Does that make sense? This is extremely cosmic because we get that God as father and son were co-eternal together from the very beginning. If you begin to say, well, actually, as a trinity, okay, here's another little graphic. The trinity is impossible. I don't like preaching on it, but we're going to do a little bit of a symbol. Before I even touch this marker to the page, I'm wrong about this, okay? I'm just telling you, you can't do this but I'm going to try because it gets us a little bit closer. Do not ever write this again and tell your friend that this is what I think because it's not everything. But the Trinity is often understood this way. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what John is saying here is not quite that way. What John is saying here is that you've got the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we get in the Nicene Creed. When we say we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, when we're saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, this is what we're saying. If you look at an Orthodox Nicene Creed, they say the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the difference between proceeding from the Father and the Son or just from the Father is one letter I. 
it is the iota. And that's homoousion or homoousion in Greek. And this is why the Roman church and the Orthodox churches split from one another in 1054 is because the Roman church believed this and the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches believe that. And if you believe they split because of that and not about money, then you are a chump. <laughs> but it's always about money, but I want you to know that's what they say theologically is why they split. And so John right here is giving us that kind of Trinitarian identity. Jesus, the Son, co-eternal with the Father, and it is through them that we get the Holy Spirit into the world. Hmm. That's good enough for today. I want you to read your gospel. Read ahead. John's easy to read. Take your chart. Make a few comparisons and notes. And if you, as you have questions, make sure you ask, because if you have a question, so does everyone else. I'm excited to do this with you all. Welcome back. See you next week.